0: Catholic History Trek, a podcast exploring the Catholic past.
1: Welcome back to Catholic History Trek. The topic we're doing this time is highly relevant, I think, to the title of our podcast. It has to do with traveling, trekking. If you're a Catholic, chances are you've gone on a pilgrimage of some kind to a shrine or a church or something like that. I think of pilgrimages probably historically they developed as an extension of the honoring of saints and martyrs, which was something that took place in the church from the earliest days of Christianity. And one of the earliest accounts we have of what we would consider an actual pilgrimage comes from an Ethiopian woman named Egeria who traveled to the Holy Land in the 4th century. So we have this document dating all the way back to the 300s. Obviously. The custom, the practice of pilgrimage goes way back to the early days of the Church. As Egeria's pilgrimage to the Holy Land indicates, places associated with the life and ministry of Jesus are obviously very important and popular sites. They remain so to this day. Think of all the pilgrimages to the Holy Land. Those continue to take place. But there's also a lot of pilgrimage sites that are connected to Marian apparitions or Marian devotion. And then a lot of others that have to do with other saints. They might be birthplaces or places of death or places where uh, saints are buried, where the relics are kept, whatever the case may be. And for whatever reason, these have become places where Christians, Catholics go to to demonstrate their devotion. So Scott, I'm thinking that we'll probably do a Marian apparition episode at some point. And so we decided that we're going to cover two other extremely popular pilgrimage sites, not Marian sites, but other pilgrimage sites, and both of these are associated with saints other than Mary. The first one, well, even many non-Catholics or non-Christians have heard of it. Some of them have even walked it. It's popularly known, in brief, as El Camino.
0: Yes, the El Camino, which is actually just one of the many names for this pilgrimage, the original Latin name of the pilgrimage was the Peregrinatio Compostellana, which is the pilgrimage to Santiago de Compostela. Compostela has often been assumed to come from the two Latin words campus stella," meaning field of stars, or it comes from the word compostia, meaning ordered or arranged. And the name Santiago is derived from St. James through the Latin Sancti Jacobi. It's also been called the Camino de Santiago, and Camino is Spanish for road, so that would be the road of St. James, or also the way of St. James, and it's often just simply referred to as the Camino. The St. James of the Santiago is St. James the Greater, who is one of the Twelve Apostles. After the death and resurrection of Jesus, St. James traveled to Spain to preach the gospel. As the story goes, he sat on the banks of the Ebro River in present-day Zaragoza, despondent about how unreceptive the natives of Hispania were when suddenly the Blessed Virgin Mary appeared to him. She was still living in Palestine at the time, so this vision which St. James experienced makes the oldest Marian apparition having taken place around 40 AD. It said she stood on a column or pillar of stone encouraging James that the people of the region would become Christians with a strong faith, faith as strong as the pillar on which she stood. James took the apparition as a sign to return to Judea, and in Judea around 44 AD, he was beheaded by King Herod Agrippa I. Well, not beheaded by the king, but under the orders of the king. At some point, St. James' body was translated back to Spain after his martyrdom, but then its location was lost for centuries wasn't until about 814 that the tomb of St. James was rediscovered, but even with the discovery of the tomb, pilgrimages to the site were slow to take off. And this was mainly due to the Moorish invasion of the Iberian Peninsula, which had happened shortly before the discovery. Santiago de Compostela was in Al-Andalus, which was held by the Umayyad Caliphate, and the Moors, you know, they just weren't going to let Catholic pilgrims trek through the territory they had conquered. Promises were made to St. James that a great shrine would be built in his honor if the Moors could be driven away. By the 12th century, the Christian kingdoms began retaking the Iberian Peninsula, and the site of St. James' tomb became a popular pilgrimage site, especially for Western Europeans, with these pilgrims using old Roman trading paths to reach the saint's tomb. Anyone familiar with St. James or the way of St. James may recognize the scallop shell is associated with both the saint and the pilgrimage. There are a variety of reasons for this and two popular stories which connect St. James to the shell are, after his death, James' disciples transported his body by ship to Spain to be buried, but a heavy storm battered the ship and the body was lost at sea, but then his body washed ashore, covered in the shells. Another story holds that James' body was transported by ship a ship piloted by an angel to Spain to be buried a young groom was tossed off his horse when the horse was spooked by the ship and the groom fell into the sea the groom emerged from the water covered in the scallops it's doubtful how true either of these conflicting stories are but somehow in the history the shell did get associated with james and these stories possibly grew up to explain that regardless today james and the shell are synonymous Santiago is about 20 miles from the Atlantic coast, so medieval pilgrims would continue their trek after they reached the shrine, and continue until they reached the sea, and grab a shell from the coast as proof of completing their journey. The shell eventually became a symbol for the pilgrimage, and now it's often used on signs to guide pilgrims, and many pilgrims today start out wearing a shell as a sign that they are undertaking the trek. So originally it was used as a sign of completion, now it's a sign that you've started. And the reason we know so much about the history of this pilgrimage is thanks to a volume called the Codex Calixtinus. This work is attributed to Pope Calixtus II in the 1130s. He was a proponent of pilgrimage, and this volume served as part liturgical, part history, and part travel guide for the Camino. The Codex has been held in the Cathedral of Santiago de Compostela archives since 1150, except when it was stolen in July of 2011. But it was found a year later in 2012 and returned to the cathedral. This volume is split up into five separate books. The first book, which accounts for about 50% of the Codex, includes sermons about St. James, accounts of his martyrdom, and liturgies for his veneration. The second book, describes miracles attributed to St. James during his life and after his death. The third book, which is the shortest book, describes the translation of his body from Jerusalem back to Spain and describes the custom of gathering souvenir seashells from the coast. The fourth book tells of St. James appearing to Charlemagne, urging him to follow the path of the Milky Way to liberate Roland's tomb and defeat the Moors. And because of this, the Milky Way is also called the Camino de Santiago in that region. And this, in this book, St. James is called St. James the Moor Slayer. And possibly for this reason, it said this book was removed for a while from the Codex, supposedly removed by King Philip III. And the fifth book is essentially a Taurus guidebook broken down into 11 chapters describing everything a good pilgrim would need to know, such as the roads to take, the stages of the path, the towns, the hostels to stay at, recognizing those who provided for the roads and bridges, kind of like an advertisement thanking them, the good and bad rivers, which ones to drink from, which ones have bad water, the lands and the people, saints' tombs to visit along the way, the city itself and the basilica when you reach there, also has the canons of St. James and how to treat the pilgrims. And one other interesting thing in the Codex is polyphonic music for chant. Most notably, Cangaduant Catholiki. If you get a chance to listen to some of it, there is more of a Middle Eastern feel than your traditional Gregorian chant that one may be familiar with. So definitely worth a moment to check one of the online sites where you can find video and audio and give this a listen. It's a very... Very interesting field, very interesting sound, not something you would expect from the medieval period in Western Europe.
1: If I could jump in here, I appreciate the reference to these early chants. Um, As you know, I've been involved in my own parish with our Schola Cantorum, which is our uh, traditional music choir, We've been a bit on hiatus lately because of all the COVID stuff, but we hope to get back to it at some point, and I've, I'm pretty sure that I've heard some of the chants you're referring to, some of the earliest chants, um, and they are somewhat different from, uh, from the, or I should say the polyphony rather than chants, so they are somewhat different from the polyphony that uh, Catholics are more familiar with, like the Palestrina stuff. Um, But I appreciate that reminder from you because I'm going to go back and check out that early polyphony and see if maybe we can sing that somewhere along the
0: way. And speaking of the way, the way of St. James, it's kind of like a river in that there's not just one way, but there are many smaller creeks and tributaries leading to the ultimate destination of the Santiago de Compostela. And so different pilgrims start from different parts if they're coming from the east, the south, the north, and then obviously how far they want to walk along that path. The most popular is the Camino Francis, which starts at the saint John pied du port near Berlitz, France, which I probably said that incorrectly, but it's about 500 miles from the destination. And there are several paths in France which converge onto this location and then set out towards Santiago de Compostela. And there are many other paths in Spain. If you just pull up a map and look at the Compostela, it's very fascinating to see it's not A particular path or a pilgrimage its actually many paths to get to the same destination. Since pilgrims began walking the path, it had become very popular, although the Black Death and Protestant Revolt led to a decline in popularity in the 16th century. And two major wars in the 20th century, World War I and World War II, did not help that, and I doubt the Spanish Revolutions helped it much either. So for these reasons and just a reduced practice in the faith in Spain, the numbers dwindled. And by the 1980s, less than 10,000 pilgrims walked the path each year. And they have an idea of how many people walk the Camino because you can register when you walk. You don't have to register. A lot of people do. And if you walk 100 kilometers, they'll give you a certificate, a Compostela certificate of having walked it. And they use these numbers to track how many people go on the pilgrimage. So I mentioned 1980s, it was under 10,000, and then it hit a resurgence of sorts by the 1990s. It had doubled up to about 20,000 per year. By the year 2000, that had jumped way up to 55,000. By 2006, it was up to 100,000. A few years later, in 2013, it reached 200,000, and by 2017, that number had jumped all the way up to 300,000. And there are many reasons for this resurgence. One would be what's called a holy year. When July 25th falls on a Saturday, a special door is open on the east side of the cathedral, and it kind of becomes a special occasion on the Camino, on the destination. And so those years were 1993, 99, 2004, 2010, 2016. So on those years, there's a huge spike in the numbers. So even in the years when it was down, the holy year would increase about hundred thousand more pilgrims than they had the previous year. And for those who do go on the pilgrimage, August is the peak travel month. And the people that go mostly list spiritual or religious reasons for undertaking the pilgrimage. Although there are many other reasons listed such as, you know, finding yourself something to do, challenging yourself, see if you can do it, uh, secular reasons. But the, the biggest reason is spiritual reasons, usually Catholic, but not always. And then of those who walk it, about 45% register that they are Spanish nationals, and then 55% come from outside of Spain. And of those 55%, 10% of those people are from the United States. And one other thing that has led to its popularity, I don't know if it drove its popularity or more captured on it, would be a 2010 movie by Emilio Estevez titled The Way, featuring his father, Ramon Estevez, who is commonly known by his screen name of Martin Sheen. Scott,
1: you mentioned the movie The Way, which I have seen and I've enjoyed, but there are a lot of other movies about uh, the Santiago de Compostela out there. Most of the other ones, The Way is kind of a typical Hollywood sort of film. Most of the other ones I'm familiar with are documentaries and my family watched one not that long ago called Footprints, The Path of Your Life. So um, I think a lot of these documentaries are very good and they kind of give you an opportunity to participate in the pilgrimage if as is the case for myself, practically speaking, I don't think I'll ever have a chance to do the Camino, so if you find yourself in that position and you still want some experience of it, I think these documentaries may be a way to do that. Um, The pilgrimage site I'm looking at is in a way similar to the Camino that Scott just described in terms of its waning popularity over time, or it's kind of falling into disuse, and for similar reasons, but Unlike El Camino, it never came back, and I'll explain why. The place I'm looking at is Canterbury in England, and Canterbury is a, a city in southeastern England. Um, it is a diocese. The Diocese of Canterbury was the principal or primatial see of England dating all the way back to the sixth century. St. Augustine of Canterbury was sent by Pope Gregory the Great in the late 500s. Um, and Augustine became the first Archbishop of Canterbury in the year 597. Then about, uh, what would this be? About 600 years later, Thomas Becket became Archbishop of Canterbury. Becket was the Chancellor under King Henry II, so this was, um, uh, I guess, the next highest office in the realm of England underneath the king would be Chancellor, and that was Thomas's position. And then when he was appointed Archbishop in 1162, he resigned the chancellorship to focus on his service to the church, Um, and as I said, served as the Archbishop of Canterbury from that time, from the year 1162. And it just so happens, Scott, you probably realize this already, but uh, when we were setting up this episode, and then we just uh, emailed back and forth to find a mutually agreeable time we settled on today, Tuesday, December 29th. It just so happens that it's the feast day of St. Thomas Becket. So, as is often the case, there was conflict between uh, church and state in England in the 12th century, and Thomas Becket, as the Archbishop of Canterbury, sought to defend the traditional rights of the church against encroachment by the king, in this case, Henry II. This conflict between Thomas and Henry came to a head in 1170 when Henry, King Henry, is reputedly reputed to have said, will no one rid me of this troublesome priest? We don't know exactly what Henry's words were. They may have been those. They may have been something else. But in any case, four of his knights interpreted what he said as a request to eliminate the Archbishop of Canterbury. So they confronted him in his cathedral. It was December 29th, 1170. They hacked St. Thomas to death with swords. Immediately, Thomas Becket became a hero to the Catholic people of England. He was canonized by the Pope less than three years after his death, which was extraordinarily quickly for a canonization. Thomas Beckett, his remains were initially buried beneath Canterbury Cathedral, and then in 1220, they were moved to the new Trinity Chapel, which is also part of the cathedral. Now Canterbury had already been a popular pilgrimage destination just because it was such a historically significant spot in English Christianity, but once the tomb of Thomas Becket uh, was founded, the numbers of pilgrims skyrocket and so over the next several centuries it was one of Europe's most famous pilgrimage sites. It's also been immortalized in cl- classic English literature through Geoffrey Chaucer's Canterbury Tales. Geoffrey Chaucer was a royal official in the late 1300s, and he wrote in this book, The Canterbury Tales, the setting is basically the pilgrimage or the walk from London to Canterbury, which is about 60 miles, and he introduces 30 pilgrims who have undertaken this journey. And they entertain each other along the way as they're walking by telling each other tales. And so the Canterbury Tales is just a series of these tales. Um, It's fiction, of course, but series of tales that uh, supposedly were told by pilgrims to each other. So there's a knight's tale, a nun's tale, and so on and so forth. But that's not the end of the story. After 400 years, this very popular pilgrimage site came to an abrupt halt. Coincidentally, it was another dispute between a chancellor named Thomas, in this case Thomas More, and another king named Henry, in this case Henry VIII. So following the break of Henry VIII with Rome, this is the English Reformation in the 16th century, Henry sought to destroy both Catholic devotion and also to confiscate church property, and so he dissolved the monasteries of England, and as part of that process, the tomb of St. Thomas Becket became a target. This makes sense because Becket in particular was a symbol of the resistance of the Catholic Church to royal power, which would have been a problem for Henry VIII in the 16th century. So he ordered the shrine of Thomas Becket to be destroyed. It was, they incinerated the bones or the relics of Thomas and the king forbade the mention of Becket's name. That happened in 1538. So thus the famous Canterbury pilgrimage came to an end. Now, Canterbury is still an Anglican cathedral today, but with the rise of ecumenism, I guess, uh, my understanding is, Scott, that it's possible now to view the site Within Canterbury Cathedral, where the shrine of Thomas Becket was, for a time that was it was completely off limits or completely hidden, and no one knew where it was, or you weren't allowed to visit it, um, at least knowingly, as a kind of sign of reverence to Thomas Becket. But my understanding is you can do so today, even though there's no there's no relics or no real shrine there. Um, but Canterbury Cathedral, this Anglican cathedral, also I discovered hosted a display of Beckett's surviving relics in 2016. So some of the bones of the martyr Thomas Beckett were sent outside of Canterbury or outside England to other places, and so some of those returned in 2016 um, for, I guess you could say, a kind of visiting tour. So these are two, just two, of the innumerable places across the Catholic world that um, are popular pilgrimage sites, a pilgrimage is a wonderful way to express devotion and also, by the way, to explore the riches of our Catholic past. Scott, I know you and your family have done pilgrimages um, here in Ohio to some of our shrines. Uh, My family has also done many in Ohio and around the country, and I think you would agree with me. It's a great uh, kind of family activity, right, Uh, to, to kind of buttress and express your Catholic faith.
0: Yes, and I think it's a great way to not only build your faith, but you're also connecting yourself with the universal church to the history of the church. And the history is great because you know it kind of helps put our faith into context. You know, for example, you mentioned when Henry II had the saint killed, he was instantly recognized as a martyr and the king did public penance. Yet years later, when Henry VIII has a saint martyred, the king, this King Henry, has his relics destroyed. Such a different reaction in an era of Christendom versus the later era and the rise of Protestantism just kind of shows how much things change. And, you know, the more we get to visit these sites and the, saints, the more you also get to recognize and learn the history of these eras and of these saints and what they were living in, living through what life was like. And it gives you a better perspective of what life is like today.
1: Yeah, great. So we leave you with that encouragement. Um, well, I guess you could say when COVID restrictions allow to actually undertake a, a pilgrimage bodily, um, until then you can do virtual pilgrimages, or there are, of course, many places around the country that, that are open to, to physical pilgrimages, even at this point. We want to conclude this
0: episode, as we always do, in prayer. Gloria Patri, et Filio, et Spiritui Sancto. Sicuturat in principio, et nunc et semper, et in saecula saeculorum. Amen.
1: Thank you for listening to Catholic History Trek. You can reach us at Catholic History Trek at gmail.com.